Good evening, Uni Church. My name is Lachlan, one of the pastors here. Great joy to be with you this evening and to wrestle together with you in this passage of 2 Corinthians. Thanks, Jacob, for praying for students and exams coming up. I've been talking to some of you. I know the stress is there, but look, holidays is just around the corner, right? Summer's coming. It's starting to warm up. Workers as well. I'm sure you're hanging out for those summer holidays. Uh, One of the holiday destinations of choice when I was growing up, I never went there, but friends from high school consistently would go to Bali in Indonesia. Anyone been to Bali before? Okay, a few people, a few people. Bali's got a few good things going for it, right? It's, it's generally sunny. There's a few good surf spots there. Food's pretty cheap. Resorts are pretty cheap to stay at, or they used to be. I think that's changed now. It's a pretty cheap place to go. And one of, the, one of the great things about Bali was you could go to the markets and buy cheap knockoffs, right? Uh, my friends would come back to college with their pirated DVDs, their... Uh, cheap t-shirts that they'd bought, they were like fake billabong t-shirts, their fake Rolex watches, that, that was Bali. Uh, now some of the fakes were pretty easy to tell, right? You put the movie on and someone's head is like in the middle of the bottom of the screen because they're just filmed in the cinema. Uh, or the t-shirt doesn't say billabong, it says billabang and you're like, yeah, all right, we can see that. <laughs> some of the fakes are pretty hard to tell though, right? Some of those Rolex watches are like, is that genuine? And then it breaks in a week and you realise, but to look at, you, you may not be able to tell. Fakes can be hard to spot. Perhaps you've been caught out in a purchase in the past, you thought you're getting a great deal, you get the product home and then someone points out it's, it's not genuine. Or maybe someone's given you a gift before and you've thought, man, they're so generous, they bought me a Rolex watch. Like, no, no, it's a fake. Look, tonight, tonight we're not going to be lamenting our bad purchases or our bad gifts. There's a much more serious reality in God's word and it's this. There are fake ministers in the church. That's serious, right? There are fake ministers in the church. This whole letter of 2 Corinthians is written as an emotional appeal from the Apostle Paul, urging the Corinthians to recognize fake ministers for what they are. Because if you buy a fake product, you might lose a few dollars. There's not much at stake there. But if you fail to recognize a fake minister, you could lose your eternal life. And so Paul is pleading with the Corinthians, saying, would you recognize these fakes for what they are? Paul had come to Corinth a number of years early. He'd preached the gospel there, and he'd seen people become Christian. They turned from idols to serve the true and living God. But since that time, Paul had left, and and some fake ministers had rolled into town. And the people of Corinth, the Christians of Corinth, they were putting up with them. Some were even starting to follow these false teachers. And so Paul is utterly distressed because the Corinthians are in danger. And these chapters tonight, 2 Corinthians 11 and 12, they're the climax of this letter. Paul's emotion, you, you might have heard it as Debred, it's a vivid emotion in this section. He wants the Corinthians to recognize that he loves them deeply. He wants them to recognize his authority and therefore to reject these fake ministers that are disagreeing with him. That's the force of the passage that we're reading tonight. What that means for us is that this passage will help us to recognize Paul's authority as a true apostle of Christ. And then once we've recognized Paul's authority, it it will help us to recognize the kind of ministers that we should be following today. And not just the kind of ministers we should follow, but also the kind of ministers that we should be. So it's an important passage for you, whether you're a Christian tonight or if you're not yet a Christian. So if you're here tonight and you're not yet a Christian Uh, You want to make sure that the Christianity you're rejecting is the true Christianity and not some fake, yeah? Make sure that you're rejecting the Christianity that's real, not the one that is false. If you are a Christian tonight, 
then tonight's passage is vital because you want to make sure that you stay faithful to Christ, that you don't stray into false teaching and lose your salvation. So let me pray, because it's a serious matter before us. Let me ask God to help us understand this passage tonight. Father, we want the truth tonight, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So teach us tonight by your powerful word that we might be protected from fake ministers, protected from false teaching. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. So how do we tell the true ministers from the fake ministers? Well, here's our big idea for, the, for tonight. The thing I want you to come away with, it's up on the screen because it's a bit longer than my normal big ideas. It's over 12 words. So it's up there for you to write down in your notes. You've got your outline there. You might like to jot this down now. The big idea for tonight, God's ministers are jealous for the church. They preserve apostolic truth and they endure suffering for the sake of the church. God's ministers are jealous for the church They preserve apostolic truth and they endure suffering for the sake of the church. In these chapters 11 and 12, Paul sinks to the Corinthian level to engage in what he calls a a bit of foolishness. It's the foolishness of boasting. Paul doesn't like talking about himself. Earlier in the letter, he's already told the Corinthians off in chapters 3 and 4 because they should be the ones commending him. He shouldn't have to be talking about himself. The Corinthians should be defending him against these intruders. But instead of commending Paul, the Corinthians have been seduced by these smooth-talking, powerful-looking super-apostles. And so Paul spends chapters 11 and 12 sinking to the foolishness of comparing himself with these false apostles. You'll see his conclusion in verse 5 of chapter 11. Keep your Bible open as we go through tonight. I'll be pointing you back there time and again. Have a look at 11 verse 5. Paul says, Now I consider myself in no way inferior to these super apostles. Now I don't know if they'd coin that term super apostles for themselves. I mean that would seem pretty arrogant to be like, Oh you're just a regular apostle. I'm a super apostle. Maybe they had done that. Maybe that was the kind of people they were. But what we know from that term is that one way or another, they thought they were superior to Paul and the other apostles. But Paul says to them, no, bro, you got this wrong. I'm not inferior to you at all. You got this around the wrong way. And then he goes through these different points of comparison. I think we can cover Paul's comparison under three headings, uh, jealousy, truth, and power. That may not cover everything in the passage. If you've been wrestling with this passage in Connect Group, you might see some other things there. As I've grappled with this, I think these three categories get us to all the stuff in this passage. They're kind of like three rounds in a bit of a boxing match. Paul's over in the blue corner, the super apostles in the red corner. We're going to see tonight who comes out on top as the true minister of God. Let's look at round one, jealousy. God's ministers are jealous for the church, not for themselves. God's ministers are jealous for the church, not for themselves. Have a look at chapter 11, verse 1 to 3. I wish you would put up with a little foolishness from me. Yes, do put up with me. For I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy, because I've promised you in marriage to one husband, to present a pure virgin to Christ. But I fear that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, 
your minds may be seduced from a complete and pure devotion to Christ. Paul's heart burns with a desire for the church in Corinth to stay faithful to Christ. Paul's not interested in his own reputation. He gets slandered time and time again and he just lets that slip by. Now what concerns Paul, what makes him write this letter, is that the Corinthians would stay devoted to Christ and still be devoted to Christ on the day that Jesus returns. Paul's concern isn't just short term. He's not just interested in winning this particular battle with the super apostles for his own reputation that the Corinthians might renew their allegiance to him. Paul's concern is very long term. He wants the Corinthians to be ready to meet Jesus. And so it gives us the illustration to help us understand this, right? The Corinthians, Paul says, they're engaged to Christ. They're promised in marriage to Christ, but now they're off flirting with someone else. They're being seduced by someone else. I just imagine if that happened to a friend of yours, right? You've got your friend, you've played the matchmaker, you've set them up with someone you think is perfect for them. They've started out in that relationship and then later on you find out they're flirting with someone that's dodgy. They're, they're risking their relationship and, and they might even run off with this boy or girl, whoever they are. That would make you frustrated, angry, annoyed. Paul knows that Jesus and Jesus alone is the husband that we need. It is Jesus and Jesus alone who has reconciled us to God. It is only Jesus who has become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. It is only Jesus who is Christ and Lord. Jesus is the husband the Corinthians need. Jesus is the husband we need. We've been promised in marriage to him. Now the Corinthians are off flirting with someone else. For anyone who's not devoted to Jesus, the day when Jesus returns will not be a wedding celebration. It'll be a day of devastating judgment. And so Paul is jealous for the Corinthians. He's pointing out for them the subtle seduction that they're under the sway of. He wants them to stay faithful to Christ. Seems like one thing that might have led the Corinthians in this direction was they were questioning Paul's love and concern for them because he refused to be paid by them. That's the discussion he goes into in verse 7 to 11. See verse 7 there in 2 Corinthians 11. Paul says, did I commit a sin by humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel to you free of charge? And down in verse 10, as the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I don't love you. God knows I do. See, Paul never liked to be paid by the people he was currently preaching to. That was one of his principles in ministry. He talks more about this back in 1 Corinthians in chapter 9 there. You might like to chase that up. We studied that a couple of years ago here at church. It seemed like this was a sore point for the Corinthians. They thought that Paul would take their money and they felt like he wasn't loving them when he refused. I I imagine it's something like when you try to give someone a gift and they say, no, they refuse your gift, that kind of feeling of rejection. I imagine that's what the Corinthians were feeling to some degree. But Paul consistently wanted to be clear that his message uh, about Jesus was not some money-making scheme for himself. That's why he refused to be paid by them. He wanted to be clear that he hadn't just made up this message about Jesus to, to have a job for himself. He was actually speaking something that was true. He's not like others who are marketing God's message for profit. And so Paul's heart, Paul's love is for these people. It's not for himself. His handling of money is one evidence towards that. Paul is jealous for the Corinthians, not for himself. 
But what about these super apostles? How do they fare in this round one on jealousy? Well, they were more than happy to take the Corinthians' money. And they were definitely concerned about their reputation. We heard earlier on in the letter about the way they they had their letters of commendation, their kind of references from other people, their list of books that they'd written, the conferences they'd been invited to. They, They had all of those on show. They'd tell anyone that they could. They were comparing themselves with one another to see who was the best super apostle. And have a listen to how they were treating the Corinthians down in verse 19. For you, Paul says to the Corinthians, being so wise, gladly put up with fools. In fact, you put up with it if someone enslaves you, if someone devours you, if someone captures you, if someone dominates you, or if someone hits you in the face. There's the kind of behavior of the super apostles towards the Corinthians. They didn't have much love for the Corinthians at all. They loved themselves. And maybe they didn't love themselves quite as much as Kanye loves himself, but they're in that same kind of vein. There are warnings for us in this, friends. We need to recognize that the Christian life is a life of ongoing engagement. Just because you're here tonight trusting in Jesus, that is no sure measure that in 10 years' time or in 50 years' time, you will still be devoted to Christ. We're engaged to Christ now, and that is wonderful, but we're not yet married to him. We wait for the day when Jesus returns. This is why false teaching is so much more dangerous than a fake Rolex. Satan will try, Satan is trying to seduce you away from Christ in all sorts of ways. He'll use all the means at his disposal, the pleasures of the world, the worries of this life, suffering, persecution. We need to recognize that the Christian life is ongoing, that we're in this time of engagement. We need to watch who we're flirting with in the world, what, what kind of things we're kind of being seduced off after. If you follow those, you might walk away from Christ and end up heading towards hell. So we recognize that the Christian life is ongoing and therefore follow ministers who are jealous for you. Follow ministers who love you. Ministers who will be willing to have hard conversations with you when they see you straying into sin. Ministers who will pull you up when they see you dabbling in sin. Ministers who will pray for you through your worries of life. Ministers who will weep with you when you're suffering. Follow those kind of ministers, ministers who are jealous for you. And avoid ministers who are just jealous for themselves. Avoid ministers whose ego is driving them, who will trample you down so that they might be exalted. This is sometimes hard to identify because sometimes these ego-driven ministers can appear like they do love you. The Bible speaks of the fact that false teachers will use flattery to draw people into their webs. You might jot down these references to look up later. Romans 16 verse 18 and 2 Peter 2 verse 3. Romans 16 verse 18, 2 Peter 2 verse 3. Passages that speak of the way false teachers will use flattery and kind of talk to puff up the pride of the people that they're speaking to. Watch out for fair-weather ministers like that who flatter you, who puff up your pride when it's of benefit to them. But as soon as you've lost your usefulness, they'll not care about you anymore. They've never loved you in the first place. They were just after how you could be of benefit to them. Watch out for that. They'll make you feel good for a time, but they're just using you. 
God's ministers are jealous for the church, not for themselves. That's round one. Paul's coming out on top in round one. What about round two? Truth. God's ministers preserve apostolic truth, not destructive half-truths. God's ministers preserve apostolic truth, not destructive half-truths. Pick up 2 Corinthians 11 with me again in verse 3. But I fear that, as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your minds may be seduced from a complete and pure devotion to Christ. For... If a person comes and preaches another Jesus whom we did not preach, or you receive a different spirit which you had not received, or a different gospel which you had not accepted, you put up with it splendidly. Now Paul here is pointing us back to Genesis 3, where the serpent seduced Eve into disobedience by twisting the words of God. The serpent there, he used the same words as God. He said things that sounded very close to the truth they're a dangerous distortion of God's truth. They're destructive half-truths. And the super-apostles are doing exactly the same thing. They're preaching Jesus, but it's a different Jesus. They're talking about the Spirit, but it's a different Spirit. They're talking about the Gospel, but it's a different Gospel. Their teaching is different from what the true apostles taught. So we need to take a bit of a step aside here and kind of look at this word apostle. What does apostle mean? What was this teaching different to? It's where I get to do my big fat Greek wedding thing, right? Comes from the Greek. You guys seen that movie? No, you haven't, have you? Yeah? Good. It's it's such a good line, right? Apple comes... No. Um, Apostle does come from the Greek, you know? It's not just making this up. It comes from a Greek word, apostello, which means to send. So at the basic level, an apostle is just one who is sent, an envoy or a messenger, But within the New Testament, there's a special usage of this word apostle. There are 12 kind of, let's call them capital A apostles. They're the the big apostles that are segmented out and given a special category within the New Testament. Uh, These apostles were specially chosen by Jesus and sent by Jesus to continue his ministry after his death and resurrection. They were called by Jesus. They had been with Jesus throughout his ministry and they were witnesses of his resurrection. After his resurrection, they were empowered by God's Spirit to be faithful witnesses to what Jesus had said and done. Now, Paul, he didn't quite fit all those categories, but he was visited by the risen Lord Jesus. You can read about it in Acts chapter 9, and then he tells the story later on as well. Uh, Paul was visited by the risen Lord Jesus, who then sent him out with the very same authority as these other 12 capital A apostles. That's what we mean when we talk about the apostles. And the apostolic truth are the things that those apostles taught. The church down to today is built on the foundation of these apostles. It's their testimony about Jesus that fills the New Testament. And that's why the Bible has a special place, a special authority as God's very word. Because through the apostles, we have access to the true Jesus. So Paul, one of God's apostles, he preached the true Jesus. Jesus who is God in the flesh crucified under Pontius Pilate and resurrected to new life. Paul teaches about God's spirit, the spirit that we heard from back in chapters 3 and 4 of 2 Corinthians, the spirit who transforms Christians into the likeness of Jesus from glory to glory. And Paul proclaims God's gospel. Back in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 5, we heard the gospel, Jesus Christ is Lord. 
And in chapter 5, Paul filled out for us that through Jesus, God has reconciled us to himself. That's the gospel. That's the apostolic truth. Now, these super apostles that had rolled into Corinth, they were teaching something different. We don't know exactly what they were teaching, but it didn't match up with what Paul and the other apostles were saying. The dangerous thing, though, is that it looked close. Yeah? That's where the danger lies. Look at 2 Corinthians 11, verse 13. Paul says, Such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no great thing if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their destiny will be according to their works. See, false teachers don't go around wearing a sign on the head saying, I'm a false teacher. They don't wear a shirt that says, I'm a false teacher, don't listen to me, I'm leading you to hell. That'd be very handy if they did do that. But they come in disguise. They talk about Jesus, the spirit, the gospel, but it's not enough that they use the right biblical language. We have to ask, what does he mean when he uses the words gospel, spirit? Is the Jesus of which he speaks the same Jesus of the Bible or a different Jesus altogether? Now, we live in a society that listens with its eyes and thinks with its feelings. And truth doesn't matter very much in our society. What matters is appearance and emotion. So I think it's easy for us, if a Christian leader looks good, if they sound impressive, if they engage well, if they use the right buzzwords, then we accept them. But can I urge you, please, as you, as you listen to podcasts, as you head down to Manor and pick up that new book that you want to read, as you uh, listen to whoever you're listening, evaluating a minister that you're choosing whether or not to follow, please check the dictionary that they're using. What is their gospel? What are they saying is the good news of Christianity? Who is their Jesus? And what spirit are they promising? Because, friends, these aren't small matters that we're talking about here. Paul is saying that some ideas are satanic. This is stuff that could cost you your eternal life. People may critique us as a church for spending so much time in the Bible. Why do we have sermons that go for at least 35 minutes every week just studying scripture? Why do we encourage people to get into a connect group midweek where they'll spend an hour reading the Bible, discussing it together? Why do we encourage people to be reading the Bible day by day? Isn't that all a bit too much? No. We do all that because we recognize that our thoughts can be led astray by Satan. That we can be seduced by something that looks close to the truth, but is not the truth. We can be seduced and fall away from the true Christ. Let me give you a couple of examples of this in the modern world. I hope you'll be okay with this. I think God's word encourages us to call things out like this when they're there. Mormonism parades itself as Christianity. In certain censuses across the globe, it's listed under Christianity as if it's a form of Christianity. Mormonism speaks of Jesus, but not a Jesus who is equal in deity with the Father. Speaks of a Jesus who is not eternal. Mormons speak about the Holy Spirit. Their whole apologetic is that you have an experience of the Spirit that testifies to the truth of Mormonism. Friends, that is not the Holy Spirit. It's testifying to a false truth. Mormons speak of a gospel, but it's not the gospel of God's grace to us in Christ. It's a gospel of Jesus plus. You have to come to Jesus, but then you also have to do all these other works, and that is how you'll be saved. 
Friends, Mormonism is not Christianity. It parades itself as such. It disguises itself as such. But Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, he is a servant of Satan. Take a second one that might be a bit closer to home for us here in Auckland. Uh, Liberal Christianity, or I should say liberal Christianity, parades itself as Christianity. Championed in our country by Lloyd Gearing. It, It speaks of Jesus but not a Jesus who preached of hell, not a Jesus who preached of judgment, not a Jesus who physically rose from the dead. Liberal Christians speak of the Holy Spirit, but not a spirit that convicts us of sin, not a spirit who transforms us into the likeness of Christ. Liberal Christians speak of a gospel, but it's not a gospel of the lordship of Christ. Friends, Lloyd Gearing is a servant of Satan. A false teacher may pastor a church. They may even pastor a mega church that has far-reaching international ministries. A false teacher may sit as a bishop or an archbishop in a prominent denomination. They may be a lecturer in a Bible college. Don't be fooled by the disguise. The ministers of Satan disguise themselves as ministers of righteousness. The key question is, Are they preserving apostolic truth? Are they preserving the truth that the apostles taught, passed down to us through the scriptures? Or are they claiming to be something like new apostles themselves, with new revelation from God that contradicts the Bible or reshapes the emphasis of the Bible? God will judge such false teachers ever so severely. God's ministers preserve apostolic truth, not destructive half-truths. that's round two done. I don't know how you're feeling. Perhaps you feel like you need a bit of a sit in the corner with a bit of a drink and a wet towel on your face. It's it's heavy going, but it's serious stuff that we're reading tonight. Uh, Paul is coming out on top in round one and two. Round three, we turn to power. God's ministers endure suffering by God's power. They don't lead a life of worldly power. God's ministers endure suffering by God's power. They don't lead a life of worldly power. In some ways, verse 1 to 20 have just been built up for Paul. He's been expressing in these uh, verses all the way through why he shouldn't have to be reduced to this level of boasting. And then verse 21, his boasting starts properly. We're going to read it now from uh, 11 verse 21 down to 12 verse 10. I want you to feel, as we hear this read, feel Paul's countercultural way of life. Hear the way that is not after a powerful life in the world's measure of power. And so as you listen, think, is this the kind of minister that you would naturally follow? Thanks, Deb. So from verse 21. I say this to our shame. We have been weak. But in whatever anyone dares to boast, I'm talking foolishly, I also dare. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm talking like a madman. I'm the better one. With far more labors, many more imprisonments, far more beatings, near death many times. Five times I received 39 lashes from Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods by the Romans. Once I was stoned by my enemies. Three times I was shipwrecked. I have spent 
a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers, dangers in the city, dangers in the open country, dangers on the sea, and dangers among false brothers. Labor and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and lacking clothing. Not to mention other things, there is the daily pressure on me, my care for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? If boasting is necessary, I will boast about my weaknesses. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is praised forever, knows I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aratus guarded the city of Damascenes in order to arrest me. So I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Boasting is necessary. It is not profitable, but I will move on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who was caught up into the third heaven 14 years ago. Whether he was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. I know that this man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows, was caught up into paradise. He heard inexpressible words, inexpressible words, which a man is not allowed to speak. I will boast about this person, but not about myself, except of my weaknesses. For if I want to boast, I will not be a fool, because I will be telling the truth. But I will spare you, so that no one can credit me with something beyond what he sees in me or hears from me, especially because of the extraordinary revelations. Therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me, so that so I would not exalt myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, catastrophes, persecutions, and in pressures because of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's an amazing piece of writing that testifies to an amazing life lived by Paul. He's not oozing worldly power and charisma, is he? His life as a Christian minister was one of difficulty, danger, suffering, pain. And this wasn't some one-off, unavoidable encounter with trial. It wasn't like he just stumbled upon accidentally some pain one day. It was a settled and daily decision of Paul to deny himself, take up his cross and follow Jesus. So Paul experienced all of this suffering in his efforts to take the news of Jesus to as many people as he could. That's why people were bashing him. That's why people threw him in jail. That's why people were trying to kill him. Because he was proclaiming Christ Jesus as Lord. He tells us back in chapter 2, remember, that he was a stench of death to some people. He stank like a dead body. That was the response of people as we proclaim Christ. All the dangers that he faces, dangers on the sea, dangers from all sorts of people... It's not because he's going on holiday somewhere. He wasn't shipwrecked on a cruise. He, he was heading to tell more and more people about Jesus. And on top of all of those trials, he reminds us at the end of his deep love for the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak, Paul says. Who's not made to stumble and I burn with indignation. That's what's happening for the Corinthians right now. They're being caused to stumble and Paul is burning with indignation. 
No wonder he went through sleepless nights as he thought about, prayed for, displayed his care for the churches that he was jealous for. Paul isn't interested in worldly power. Instead, he humbles himself and serves the church. He proclaims Christ Jesus as Lord and himself as the church's servant. As you hear that, this might remind you of what Jesus taught his disciples about the nature of true gospel ministry. Mark 10, verse 42, Jesus speaking to his disciples, he says, The rulers of the Gentiles dominate them, and their men of high positions exercise power over them. But it must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, there is the nature of true gospel ministry, not worldly power, not dominating others, but serving, laying down your life for others. Now, do you remember from verse 20, back in 2 Corinthians 11, what the super apostles were like in their treatment of the Corinthians? They were enslaving the Corinthians. They were devouring them, capturing them, dominating them, even perhaps hitting them in the face. The super apostles, they were operating with worldly power. But Paul was standing in the line of fire, taking the blows for the sake of the Corinthians. I think this becomes all the more remarkable for us once we realize that Paul could easily have kind of claimed that worldly authority and power. At the start of his boast here, you notice he claims the same pedigree as the super apostles. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they sons of Abraham? So am I. Paul had the same pedigree. He could have claimed that authority. He'd also seen remarkable visions that would have made the Corinthians proud. That's what he talks about at the start of chapter 12. He was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words. He performed miracles. The Corinthians loved miracles. If you remember 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, they were all about the phenomenal, miraculous. But Paul, he doesn't go around telling everyone about his remarkable visions, about the miracles that he performed. Even here, as he starts talking about it, and it's taken him 14 years to talk about this vision. It's not recorded anywhere else. 14 years, he's kind of held on to this. And as he starts talking about it, he doesn't even say it's himself that saw the vision. He, he starts by saying he knows of someone else that had this remarkable vision. As he goes on through the chapter, you can see that it was himself who had this vision, but he's so reluctant to talk about it. Now, what's his reluctance? Well, he tells us in chapter 12, verse 6, I will spare you so that no one can credit me with something beyond what he sees in me or hears from me. Do you get the logic there? Paul wants people to evaluate him just on the basis of what they can see, of what they can hear. Not on some claimed vision that they can't know about. Not on some claimed vision that he could have just easily made up. Friends, watch out for leaders who look like the world's view of power and success. Watch out for leaders who talk about their visionary experiences as a way of establishing their credibility. Watch out for leaders who point to their miracles as evidence that God is working through them. Whenever much is made of experience, you can be sure that there is much ego 
not far below the surface. They might couch it in terms that kind of sound like, yeah, they're talking about how amazing God is, but if they're talking consistently about the things that they have seen, the visions they have seen, the the miracles they have done, there's ego lying not far beneath the surface there. And be aware that visions and even miracles can be faked by Satan. They are no sure sign of a true minister. Again, if you want to look these references up later, Matthew 24, verse 24, Jesus warns of false ministers who will come performing, performing signs and wonders. Matthew 24, verse 24. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 9, another passage where Paul speaks of the lawless one, Satan multiplying signs, miracles and wonders. Miracles are no true sign, no sure sign of a true minister. And so Paul, well, Paul doesn't look like the world's view of power and success but he is living the life of true power. When he's weak, when he's at his wit's end, when he's in prison, when he's beaten within an inch of his life, and when in that moment he gets up and he keeps proclaiming Jesus, in that moment he keeps preaching the gospel, that is when God's power is on display. There's a vital truth for us here in 2 Corinthians 12. See, we often want the Christian life to be a journey from weakness into strength. You know, we might be in a position where Life at home, our family life, it's, it's really struggling. Our studies aren't going well. Our finances are a mess. We're physically, we're mentally unwell. We're, we're in this position of weakness and we want the Christian life to be a movement from weakness into strength. We want God to move us into the position of control where our life at home is under control. Our studies are all sorted. We're getting things handed in on time, where our finances are secure, where we're healthy. That's what we want. But God does not promise to move us from weakness into strength. God's promise is for power in the midst of the weakness. You can notice this, or I think we can get at this by taking a fairly popular song. You may have sung this in churches before, depending where you've been before. A song that sings, uh, there's power in the name of Jesus. There's power in the name of Jesus. There's power in the name of Jesus to break every chain, to break every chain, to break every chain. Just felt like I had to repeat it like the song does. Wouldn't be the same otherwise. There's power in the name of Jesus to break every chain. We we like to sing that. We like to think that that's the Christian life. But Paul is saying, not that there's power to break every chain. There's power in the name of Jesus. Paul says to help us endure when we are in chains. It's when we're in the chains, when we're in prison, or whatever that struggle and that weakness is, when we we're struck down with an illness that's just never going to get better from we're when our life is out of control, when we're in that position, suffering for Christ, and we still choose to get up and proclaim Jesus, that is God's power. It's when we see that our light momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far surpasses them all. When we know that though outwardly we may be wasting away, but inwardly we're being renewed day by day. When we recognize that we are just frail jars of clay, And so we get out of the way and the power of God shines through in the gospel. Power in the midst of weakness. So have another look at these amazing words that God spoke to Paul as he grappled with this thorn in the flesh. After his visionary experience, God gave him this thorn in his flesh and he tells us why. It was so that he would not exalt himself. It's kind of prick Paul's ego and subdue his ego. Have a look at 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9. Amazing words. God says, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Do you want to experience God's power in your life? 
then take up your cross and follow Jesus through suffering and weakness. And follow ministers who are imitating Jesus in this way. Ministers who are living out a ministry of the cross. God's ministers endure suffering by God's power. They don't lead a life of worldly power. Well, church, it's a lengthy and passionate and serious passage that God's confronted us with tonight. Hear the way that Paul brings it to a close. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 11. Paul says, I've become a fool. You forced it on me. I should have been endorsed by you, since I'm not in any way inferior to these super apostles, even though I'm nothing. The signs of an apostle were performed with great endurance among you. Not only signs, but also wonders and miracles. So in what way were you treated worse than the other churches? Except that I personally didn't burden you. Forgive me this wrong. Paul says to the Corinthians, as he said back in chapter 6, Friends, we've opened our hearts to you. Open your hearts to us. Come back. Recognize our love for you. Recognize our authority. Stick with the truth. In this battle between Paul in the blue corner and the super apostles in the red corner, Paul wins hands down. But friends, this is not a passage about Paul. Paul is not concerned for his reputation. This is all about the Corinthians and whether they will stay faithful to Christ until the day of Jesus' return. Remember, they're engaged to Christ. They're not married yet. Paul wants them to stay secure, stay devoted to Christ, not flirting with false teaching, not being seduced away to something else. It matters that you can recognize fake ministers. Please don't be naive. Not everyone who calls themselves a Christian is a Christian. Not everyone who calls themselves a pastor is a true minister of God. We've seen tonight three identifying features of true ministers. God's ministers are jealous for the church. They preserve apostolic truth and they endure suffering for the sake of the church. So the question for us is, who will you follow? And who will you be? If you have any concerns on those three counts about me as a pastor here or about any of the other pastoral team, please do come and chat to us. I don't want to be a false teacher. If you're seeing something in me that's got you concerned, I'd love to have a chat. I'm seeking to be faithful to the apostolic teaching. Let's, let's talk there. I hope you find us as a pastoral team to be approved workmen, rightly handling God's word of truth. Know that we are jealous for you. We pray for you. We lose sleep over you. We love you. So be discerning as you listen to preachers on the internet. Don't get swept away by impressive-looking miracles or claims of visionary experiences. Stick to the apostolic truth that's been passed down through the ages, preserved in the Bible. And let's suffer together as a church for the sake of Christ, because God's power is perfected in our weakness. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you have saved us. We don't deserve that one bit. We, we deserve when Jesus returns to be facing that devastating judgment. That's what we've earned for ourselves by our wickedness, by our rebellion against you. But in your mercy, you don't give us what we deserve. In your mercy, you sent your son into the world to take the penalty for our sin that we might become innocent before you. You've reconciled us to yourself. We're so thankful for that. Father, please keep us in the truth. 
Sustain us that we might be faithful until the day of Jesus' return. Grow us in our maturity that we might be able to discern true from false. And subdue our egos that Christ might be magnified in us. Father, we pray tonight against fake ministers in this city. Please would you throw them out of their positions of influence and authority. Please would you save people from their snares. Father, we also pray for true ministers across this city. We know there are many. Please sustain them in their teaching of the truth. Please sustain them as they endure suffering. Sustain them as they pour out their lives in heartfelt love for the people you've placed under their care. Father, we ask all these things with an expectation and a longing that we will see Jesus face to face one day. Come soon, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name and for his glory we pray. Amen.